1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Jeffrey Dudas, who is the author of Raised Right, Fatherhood in American uh, Modern American Conservatism. The book is published by Stanford University Press, specifically Stanford Law Books. Uh, I have the real pleasure to have uh, uh, Jeff on the phone today. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing great, Heath. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, uh, sharing the book. Um, uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is? So I
0: am a, an associate professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. My PhD was from the University of Washington, uh, also in political science. And I have been um, at UConn for going on 15 years now.
1: Great. So so this book, uh, you know, so often, uh, well, books wouldn't be published if there aren't timely in some ways, but there's such interesting ways that this book is timely now even though it covers um a lot of history in it and and for that reason i thought maybe we could start our conversation by trying to place the book uh, in time Uh, when you refer to modern american conservatism what is the period that you're most interested in and and why is this the right period to focus on knowing that, that these things can be debated so Place us in time, uh, in terms of where you did your research and, and what you think the right catch is. So,
0: when I refer to modern American conservatism, I'm really placing the beginning of the time period at the in the early 1950s, in the immediate post World War II era, and this uh, this placement is consistent with what most historians uh, of American conservatism. Um, with the way in which they tend to place uh, a, a real transition point between kind of a, an older New Deal era conservatism and earlier, and this kind of um, this post-war modern conservatism um, that's that's really kicked off intellectually by William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, his collaborators on the National Review. And then moving that time period forward, moving that, the, that movement forward from about the early 1950s on. Um, it's an appropriate place to start. And as I try to suggest throughout the book, it's the resonances or the, the through lines between those early moments uh, with Buckley and his collaborators uh, really do carry through up to the contemporary moment.
1: Now, you describe in the book the one of the unifying themes of American conservatism as paternal rights. Uh, this isn't what most people um, would would first think of, though. I, I, I think you make such an interesting, compelling case. What do you mean by this exactly? What do you What do you mean by paternal rights, and, and why are they uh, so significant? We'll get into some of the chapters and some of the very specific. Uh, People who you you work on, but but let's talk sort of from that perspective on uh, on uh, paternal rights,
0: right? So my my abiding interest in getting the project started was in recognizing, along with so many other scholars of American conservatism, that it it is on its face such a kind of a motley configuration of interests uh, and constituencies, people who, in a lot of ways, seem to not have anything at all in common with one another. Um, and yet, in spite of the what would appear to be these kinds of significant internal fissures and tensions, the movement has tended to thrive over the course of you know seventy plus years now. And so, I was interested in trying to figure out what it was that these people might share in common. Um, <laughs> And what I found was they all tend, in spite of their significant differences on matters of policy, on matters of proper governmental relationships with citizens, they all tend to share a very common language, a common way of speaking about the nature of political authority. And what I found is, is they all tend to voice what I call in the book this paternal rights discourse. And it's, it's a in some ways a kind of odd and counterintuitive way of, of talking that at once conjoins reverence for fathers, both historical fathers and contemporary biological fathers, and reverence for individual rights. And to speak of rights, individual rights, I should say, as really the, the provenance, as is, is really the, the sort of thing that we were gifted um, by the work of of fathers um and so what i find is that it's it's this way of of thinking and this way of talking and justifying authority that is really widely shared by this otherwise motley crew of uh, motley group i should say um of of interests and constituents
1: as the cover of the book shows, uh, the book is structured around these three important figures, uh, Buckley, Reagan, and Clarence Thomas. And, and let's, let's start with the chapter about the National Review's William Buckley. Uh, Buckley is often referred to as the father of American conservatism, much to the point of the book. Um, but you focus uh, this chapter in part on his fiction writer, um, the so-called Blackford Oaks novels, Uh, Would you tell us about these books that that probably for most people are are a surprise, um, if not eye-opening, and and what they say about Buckley's worldview and, and his view of fatherhood? Sure.
0: So the, the Blackford Oak spy novels were a, a series of, of 11 novels, eventually, that Buckley really wrote over the last portion of his life. He The first one uh, is entitled Saving the Queen, and it was written predominantly in 1975, so well after Buckley was already a, a very well-established intellectual and, and political figure um, in American politics. And um, he, he came... He came eventually to regard this series of spy novels as really one of the crowning achievements of his intellectual product and output. And while I, I think that that you're correct in saying that it's it's a, a these days a, a not a very well known series, it was a surprisingly popular series uh, in its time. Um, one of the reasons I think that it probably is not very well known is that to uh, Buckley's everlasting chagrin, he never could get Hollywood producers and writers interested in converting the novels into movies. Um, so while they, I, I think, have, have kind of been lost somewhat in the mists of time, they were quite prominent, uh, at least as literary products in their day. And certainly Buckley always thought of them as great accomplishments. Um the The novels themselves are uh, of varying quality, I suppose. Um, the first couple were both quite well received both by critics and by a popular audience. Both of the first two novels, in fact spent significant amount significant amounts of time I should say on the New York Times bestsellers list and garnered you know fairly significantly uh, good reviews. Um, and then as the series went on, it, it sort of, you know, became less and less commercially and, and critically attractive. But the the novels tell the story of uh, this CIA agent, this covert CIA agent named Blackford Oaks. And Buckley modeled Oaks after his own life experiences, um, but he also in, invested Oaks with. Uh, certainly the physical properties that that Buckley himself did not have. Um, So he characterized Oakes consistently as this, quote, startlingly startlingly handsome uh, American hero. And he borrows that verbiage from, um, from Herman Melville's characterization of Billy Budd. And in fact, Buckley had said he modeled um, Blackford Oaks in his mind after Robert Redford. Uh, and so obviously anybody who's seen the picture of William F. Buckley knows that he was, uh, he bore almost no resemblance to Robert Redford. So physically, uh, it, it is in fact a work, significant work of fiction. But uh, with regard to the life experiences of Oaks, um, there it's, it's in many ways a thinly veiled biography of Buckley's own life uh, himself. And so I In the book, I spend a long time sort of going through the trajectory of these novels. And what I find is that in spite of the fact that these are fictional novels and they are not obvious commentaries on the politics of the day, as the vast majority of all of his other voluminous writings were, the novels are actually in many ways the the most crystalline and the finest and the most clear uh, enunciations of the kind of figure, the kind of heroic figure that Buckley considered to be, uh, you know, the modal American subject. Um, And so if you want to understand my argument is if you want to understand really the, uh, the emotional connection that Buckley has to the American nation and the the idea of American citizenship. The best place to go is is to these spy novels. Um, and in short, the the sort of figure that he celebrates there is this, you know, hypermasculine figure who engages in in dangerous uh, escapades um, abroad in the name of American security, and who, as a as a not incidental part of his appeal. Has a very strong sex appeal and is consistently engaged in, um, you know, all manner of, of of sexual liaisons with with other dangerous female diplomats, uh, foreign nationals, other spies, and the like. And my argument is, is that his uh, is that Oakes's capacities, I suppose, uh, in the bedroom are frequently and always presented. I should say by Buckley as just as important as the kinds of things that he does in the name of American security. You,
1: you move from that and, and I figure that features, features in, in, in Buckley's uh, period is, is Ronald Reagan and features heavily in the book as well. Um, uh, Reagan rises to fame in politics for taking on student protesters in California and, and then later as president uh, in, in his actions in the foreign policy realm, especially. Um, how does Reagan fit into your thesis about fatherhood and the political right? Uh, he's, he's not writing fiction. He's, he's leading the country. So, so what, is, what is the story about Reagan? Well, like, like Buckley
0: Jr. and like Clarence Thomas, um, Reagan's engagement with fatherhood begins personally and biographically. All three of these figures had fraught Uh, to put it mildly, fraught relationships with their own biological fathers, and yet nevertheless insisted that paternal authority and reverence for fathers was necessary for the production of mature and responsible and disciplined American citizens later in life. And so for Reagan, the the desire for strong paternal authority really begins as a, as an attempt in my argument to overcome his own, uh, you know, the shortcomings of his own biological father, who was a, a long time alcoholic and very unstable and uh, presence who was someone that, that Reagan was ashamed of that who Reagan always tried to escape his influence and his shadow. Uh, and yet, Reagan always still believed that the presence of strong paternal authority and influence was absolutely vital for the conduct of virtuous American citizenship. And so he was consistently looking to replace the, the, the lost influence of his own biological father with these kinds of surrogate fathers and... Um, Sometimes the surrogate fathers were people in his real life, um, mentors who he had run across as he sort of worked his way up through the entertainment world into the political world. Sometimes, and eventually, I I argue, as he became more entrenched in in American politics, the surrogate fathers who were really important to him were the nation's mythical founding fathers um, who considered, he argued, who bequeathed, Um, to American citizens, this legacy of rights, of individual rights and and freedom. And who, according to Reagan, offered a kind of template for how to live virtuous lives. Um, And so for Reagan, whenever he imagined his political rivals or... uh, People that he might consider to be political threats or enemies, such as student protesters at Berkeley when he was governor of California in the late 1960s. He tended to interpret their political activism according to this rubric of whether they had been properly parented and turned into uh, virtuous American citizens or whether they had somehow had a kind of a deficient Upbringing, which had led them to behave in ways that were irresponsible, that were ungrateful to their elders, um, and that were eventually dangerous to the American nation. Um, so for Reagan, the, the theme of fatherhood is this kind of ever present theme that articulates both with his own personal biological um, experience and serves as, I argue, the, the hinge or the major transition point uh, in his career in politics.
1: Now, you argue later in the book uh, that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas' view of the Constitution and, and rights is, is very much shaped by his view of the home and family. Uh, what is this relationship between um, uh, conservative jurisprudence in, in sort of the name of Clarence Thomas and the central thesis of your book? Right. So, you know, for Clarence Thomas, his, his major
0: jurisprudential philosophy, so the way that, that he means to read law, is, uh, is, is in some ways a very conventional one. He, he employs uh, what's referred to as the, the original uh, understanding method uh, of reading law, which simply requires the justice or the the judge in this case, to try to divine whatever the the original understanding Mm -hmm. of the people who wrote the law, who passed the law, who were alive when the law was put into place, what was their understanding of what the law was supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the idea is that the judge acts as a kind of um, a relay transmitter of that original intention, updating it into modern times. Or into contemporary times, and then trying to apply that understanding as the meaning of the law. Um, and as I say, this is a—it's a pretty conventional uh, jurisprudential theory. It's been around for a long time, um, but it, it's one that really, for Thomas, makes a lot of sense because it again points for him to the role of of fathers in. Uh, in determining what it is that the children and sons, or in this case, later generations of jurists, how it is that they ought to understand what law is about and what politics is about, and so for for Thomas, um, when he thinks about the original understanding of a law, or you know, perhaps the framers of the Constitution, if it's a constitutional case. He's really interpreting those through this other frame that is very important to him about the role that fathers should play in the lives of their children, especially the lives of, of male children. And for for Thomas, the, the point of, of fathers is to is to give children the the stability and also to give them the or to instill in them the discipline that is needed to to make good choices later in life, to learn how to sacrifice, to learn how to be responsible people. And he sees an almost one-to-one convergence between that act of fatherhood and the the act of interpreting a legal text. Um, So when you read his most prominent Supreme Court opinions – he is consistently referring to the understandings and the intents of the framers. And his argument is that he has no choice, but to enforce um, that understanding and that intent on the meaning of law, because to do otherwise would be to be unfaithful to his role as a jurist. And it's not a stretch to suggest that to do otherwise than that would also to be unfaithful to one's parentage unfaithful to the legacy of one's fathers.
1: Now your book uh, is, is not about Donald Trump, uh, but it's very hard to, to read the book, uh, have read the book and to hear you talk without thinking about Trump. It's also very hard to think about the, the, what you've said in in, not in the context of larger questions about gender, but also race. You, you referenced Trump briefly in the book and and some of the comments that he made about former president Obama. And I wonder if maybe we can wrap up a little bit by, by talking about some of those dimensions of the book, which are not necessarily the focus of the book, but, but is the context of it, which is, um, our current president, um, who is not always held up as a model of American conservatism, but, but does fit into this argument you're making about paternalism and how it relates to, um, uh, issues of gender and also race. So so maybe we can wrap up our conversation in, in the present.
0: Yeah, as, as you say, uh, you know, nearly all of the book was written. In fact, all of the book was written um, prior to the the 2016 presidential election. Um, but I do think, uh, as you suggest, that there are clear through lines and, and connections and tether points between uh, the analysis of the book and the you know the contemporary political moment, and um, you know I do see Donald Trump as a pretty a pretty accurate representative of this tradition of American modern American conservatism as I have outlined it as as being really uh, committed and indebted to this vision of paternal authority um, as conjoined with a vision of, of of individual rights. And, um, we, you know, we consistently see in, in Donald Trump, the same sorts of, um, focus on character qualities of both of, both of his, uh, of his, you know, the people that he considers to be virtuous Americans, and especially of the people that he considers to be, um, to be, uh, pariahs, uh, or villains. Um, they're the, it's the same sort of understanding of who counts as a virtuous citizen and who counts as a dangerous citizen that uh, that we really see threaded throughout the, the history of, of modern American conservatism um, you know so for example uh, you know I mean there's there was that moment uh, that I sometimes think back on in one of the presidential debates with Hillary Clinton where um, the two candidates had been asked by an audience member to say something nice about each other. I don't know if you remember that that exchange. And uh I think Hillary went first and she complimented uh Donald Trump's children and said that she thought that he must have done something useful, you know, I'm paraphrasing, um, in raising them because they had turned, they seem to have turned out. Uh, pretty well, and you know, if, if you recall, Trump's response was quite—he uh, was—he was quite self-satisfied with that compliment. Um, and it was curious because all of the evidence suggests that, that Donald Trump was actually a a, a completely non-present figure <laughs> in his children's lives, um, and and by his own account, he was almost never around and left all of the child rearing to to his various wives. But in that moment, you see this connection, um, you know, uh, literalized on his face and in his body language of how important he thinks uh, a strong patriarchal figure is to the establishment um, and to the development eventually of of virtuous American citizens.
1: Yeah, and, you know, rises to political fame in part by questioning President Obama's uh, parentage. Uh, and and, uh, and so in so many ways, so many other very interesting aspects of this um, very interesting book. Uh, the title again is Raised Right, Fatherhood in American uh, Modern American Conservatism. The author who you've been hearing from is Jeffrey Dudas. The publisher is Stanford University Press and available at their website. Jeff, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, Heath.